my kids, they really like bread. I tell them all the time, man, I live on bread alone. Yo, on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Tucker laughs every time I say it. Yeah. So just like we said up there, um, we need the word of God. It's our daily bread. So let's turn to it. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be studying there this morning. If you snuck in after the introduction, my name is Shane. I'm the RUF campus minister here, and I'm excited to bring God's word to you this morning. I'm not the only RUF campus minister here. Uh, Chris Garriott, who's the RUF campus minister at Maryland, is also here with us this morning. Chris, raise your hand. He's in the blue shirt back there. So you guys, uh, go say hi to Chris. Get to know him. Ask him about RUF at Maryland. One of the beautiful things about RUF is we have a fixed theology, but a flexible methodology. And so that allows us to do ministry on campuses that are vastly different. Maryland is vastly different than Oklahoma State in a a lot of different ways. And so it'd be, I think it'd be awesome to hear from Chris just how they do ministry there and how their ministry looks different than ours, uh, but also similar. So get to know Chris. Uh, One of the things that that we do at RUF at Oklahoma State is we have a large group Bible study on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock where we try to get all of our students to come together uh, for worship and for fellowship. And at that Bible study, we teach through books of the Bible or themes of the Bible. And as I said last week, this semester, we are going to be studying what we believe. The title of the sermon series is We Believe. Um, As we talked about last week, our beliefs have power. Uh, They shape us and they shape the world around us. And everybody has beliefs, whether you're a religious person or an irreligious person. You have beliefs and those beliefs shape you. Christians certainly have beliefs. Those beliefs shape us. They shape our view of the Bible and God and life. And so what we're going to do each week is we're going to examine what Christians believe in hopes that it will help uh, our Christian students become stronger in their faith, learn more about what they believe, and our non-Christian students to really analyze what they believe. And hopefully they will see that the Christian belief story is more beautiful and more believable than what they believe. Last week, we began looking at the Bible, and I try to answer this question. Is the Bible true? And we saw that, yes, the Bible is true because it is the Word of God, and it is an eyewitness account of God's interaction in history with man. That's an important question, but I think another important question that especially students are asking today is this. Is the Bible good? Is the Bible good? So this morning, what I hope you'll see is that the Bible is good because it brings real hope to our world. So we're going to pray together, and then I'm going to intro the sermon, and we'll read the the sermon text is kind of split up into a couple different sections. So we'll pray now, and then we'll read later. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you as people this morning who need hope. We have been deeply Uh, disappointed and affected by our own sin and by the sin in the world around us. Uh, We've been disappointed by our inability to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourself. Uh, We've been disappointed by our ability to parent and by the way our parents parented us. Uh, We've been disappointed... um, that we just can't be better, that life is hard, it's a struggle, 
Uh, we've been disappointed in our marriages. We've been disappointed in our families. We've been disappointed at work. Um, Father, we come this morning tired, disappointed people who need to hear your good word. So we pray that you'd bring hope through your word. Pray that you bring hope to the gospel. We pray that we would receive Jesus and rest in him as we find him in his word. And we pray that you would help us to believe this hope and to share this hope with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night was movie night at the Hatfield House, and I let the kids pick the movie with some guidance, and they decided to watch Mary Poppins Returns, which is a fairly recent movie, so I'm going to try not to spoil it for you. But if you've seen the original Mary Poppins, then you can probably guess how Mary Poppins Returns is going to go. If you haven't seen the original Mary Poppins, you should go back and watch it. It is way better than Mary Poppins Returns. But Mary, Mary Poppins Returns is okay. It's, it's average. If you've seen original Mary Poppins, there are parts of this new one that will feel special, but the original's better. Okay. But in, in Mary Poppins Returns, it, it picks up the story from Mary Poppins about 20 years later that John and Jane Banks were the little kids in the original Mary Poppins. They're now grown up, and they're in the midst of facing a lot of disappointment in life. Uh, their brother and sister, they live together because John's wife got sick and she died. And he spent all of his money trying to save her life. And in the process of that, he had to take out a loan against their house to keep their house. The house is very special to the Banks family. Well, his wife has passed away. Now he has to take care of his three kids. His house is in foreclosure and the bank wants to come and repossess the house. So John and Jane are on a quest to find a certificate that says that his father owns shares in the bank. Because if they own shares in the bank, then they have the money to keep their house. Well, in the midst of all this, it looks like everything is going to unravel. And who shows up? Mary Poppins. She comes out of the clouds holding her umbrella, holding on to the kite that the little boy is is flying, and you know, if you've seen the original one, all of a sudden the song pops in your head, let's go fly a kite, right? They don't play that song, but they should. It'd make the scene way better. But she comes in flying on her umbrella to save the day. She takes the bank's children. She nannies them while John and Jane look for the, the bank certificate. And the whole movie turns when Mary Poppins convinces the children that everything is possible, even the impossible. It's an, it's an important line in the movie. Everything is possible, even the impossible. And then the children begin to help out to try to find the bank shares. I won't tell you exactly how the movie ends, but let me just say this. At the last minute, Mary Poppins flies to the rescue on her umbrella. They find the certificate. They save the house, and the movie closes with everybody in town, basically, floating up on a balloon, singing. And then the Banks family lands their balloons right in front of their house. The cherry blossoms are in bloom all around, and they walk into the house to live happily ever after. It's really a beautiful scene, but I couldn't help the whole time but feel this cynicism just growing in my heart. Just kind of thought, 
sure. It would be nice if Mary Poppins actually existed and she were going to come and make everything better. But she doesn't. Sure, it would be nice if everything that was impossible was possible. But it's not. Sure, it would be nice if every story had a happy ending. But it doesn't. And as my cynicism grew, I began to think about the sermon, because that's what pastors do on Saturday nights. They think about their sermon for Sunday. And then it struck me. What if the story actually is true? What if? What if there was someone who was actually going to come on the clouds to rescue? What if there was someone who could actually make everything that seemed impossible possible? And what if there was someone that could guarantee that there was actually going to be a happy ending? What if it's true? The Bible tells us that that's actually what Jesus came to do. That he came from heaven to rescue us. That he came from heaven to make the impossible possible. And that he came from heaven to make sure that the story of this world ended happily. In short, Jesus came to give us hope. And what I want you to see this morning as we Look at Luke 24, is that the Bible is good because it brings true hope in the midst of our deepest disappointments. So we're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at the story of our disappointments and then the story of our hope. First, let's talk about the story of our disappointments. Luke 24, starting with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So if you're here last week, we know that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke for Theophilus to show that the things that, that Theophilus, had, Theophilus had been taught about the personal work of Jesus were true. 
So the entire book of Luke is laying out the life and death of Jesus Christ for Theophilus. Now we get to the end of the book and we have these disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem because Jesus has died. And as they explain, they're disappointed, right? They thought that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel. For hundreds, if not thousands of years, the Jews had been waiting for a Savior to come and rescue them. But what they thought they needed was a political Savior to come, defeat Rome, drive them out, and free Israel back to their glory days of David and Solomon, where they were a united kingdom, they were powerful, they were glorious, and they possessed all the promises of God here in this promised land. But they thought that their primary problem was a political, physical problem. Right? And so when Jesus didn't do those things, they were disappointed. They thought he was the guy, right? That he, he taught the word with truth. He did all these miracles. He was powerful. He was a powerful prophet. But the religious leaders captured him. They condemned him. They killed him. Now the body is gone. The rescue has failed. And Jesus did not meet their expectations. Their expectations of Jesus failed to meet the reality of Jesus. They were disappointed, sad, and confused. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you were like the disciples? When were you deeply disappointed? I think disappointment often comes when when reality does not meet our expectations. Um, Like the disciples... Um, we sometimes suffer disappointment when our views are, our expectations are false, when they're naive, and sometimes even when they're good expectations that just don't come true. We suffer disappointment because sometimes our expectations are just wrong. The di- disciples' expectations were wrong in a lot of ways. Right? They thought they needed a savior that they didn't, they thought they, they had a problem that they didn't actually have. They had a problem, but it was not their deepest problem and their worst problem, right? Their main enemy was not just the Roman occupation and the Roman government. Their main enemy was the sin and misery they experienced through the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the primary enemies enemies of a Christian. Those are the primary enemies of God's people. Those are the primary enemies that we still have today right? Just like them, sometimes our, our um, expectations for, just, for life are just wrong. They're just wrong. Um, one of the expectations that we have in this life is that this world is going to make us enough. That something in this world can make us enough. I'm reading a book right now called Seculosity by David Zoll. And Zoll uh, posits that seculosity is this belief that something from the natural world can make us enough. He says, religious people and irreligious people all want to be enough. And so they look to the world to make them enough. 
They look to their intelligence, their friends, the approval of their friends and their family, their work, their hobbies, their children, all these different things to make them feel like they're enough. And the problem with that is nothing in this world can make us feel like we're enough. Nothing. It will all leave us disappointed, sad, and confused. Um, I was always reading the reviews of Mary Poppins after the movie last night. Um, one, one reviewer said this, and I thought this was really insightful. He, said, he called Mary Poppins Disney's secular savior. Disney's secular savior. I thought, man, that's so true. Don't we all just want something to come out of the clouds and make us feel better about life in the midst of our disappointments? It's not just secular people do that. It's Christians too. I just want to feel better sometimes. I just want to be enough, don't you? And the problem with this is, th- is this. That story is not going to end well. If you were always looking to this world to make you enough, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. Uh, your marriage is not going to go well. Your parenting is not going to go well. Uh, your family is not going to go well. You just won't. You'll be 70 years old, tired, disappointed, sad, working 70 hours a week still. It will never be enough. Um, but that's not the only like, wrong belief we have. I don't, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I think one wrong expectation Christians have is that we will never suffer. And that's just wrong. Jesus himself had to suffer to enter into glory. And the Bible from cover to cover says that for us to enter into glory, we're going to have to suffer as well. It's just a wrong expectation. So sometimes we're disappointed because we have wrong expectations. Sometimes we suffer because our expectations are naive. Uh, If you look at the text here in 25 and 26, Jesus listens to them and then sort of rebukes them. He says, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Now, foolish ones, it could, it's, it's a little hard to see just how strong this rebuke is. But foolish ones could be more of just a gentle uh, pointing out their naivety, right? It could be that they were really naive about what life was going to be like. They were really naive. And their naivety led to these slow, unbelieving, sort of foggy hearts, that did not believe all of Scripture. That it kept them from recognizing Jesus and seeing the full story. And I think like them, sometimes our, sometimes our expectations are just naive, right? It is, it is naive to think that vacation is going to rescue you. I won't do a show of hands, but I know there's at least one person in this congregation that really thought vacation was going to save him this summer, and it didn't. Shocking, isn't it? Vacation won't save you. Um, Our expectations about marriage are just naive. It is naive to think that one person will complete you. That line from uh, the movie, oh, I can't. Jerry Maguire, why can't I draw a blank? The line from Jerry Maguire, you complete me, has been the most disastrous thing for marriages ever since. A human will not complete you. 
It's just naive to think that that's what's going to happen when you get married. Kids, your parents are going to let you down. It's naive to think that they won't. They're, they're fallen, broken, sinful human beings. They're going to break their promises. Okay, I'm just going to let you know, guys. I'm sorry. They're going to break their promises to you. It is naive to think that they won't. It's naive to think that your job is going to satisfy you every day. College students, it's naive to think that you're going to come out of college and get the job of your dreams right off the bat. It's just not going to happen. It's naive to think that you're going to have a job that's fulfilling, satisfying, and financially stable every day of your life. It's a naive expectation. Um, students, it's naive to think that your friends will not let you down, because they will. It's also naive to think, and I, I, hear this, I heard this just recently, that becoming a Christian is going to make your life easier. It won't. In fact, in many ways, becoming a Christian is going to make your life infinitely harder than it was before. Um, the desire, now, I don't want to be too hard on this, the desire for something better and experience of disappointment isn't altogether bad, but it's incomplete. Many of the desires that we have show that we're alive and we're passionate about life and we have feelings and that's good. But as C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Your life, this life just won't satisfy us. Those expectations are naive. And then lastly, sometimes we're, we're disappointed because we have a good expectation, a good desire, but we live in a fallen world. Right? We live in a fallen sinful world. It is right to be sad and confused about the brokenness in this world. It is right to be sad and disappointed about sickness. It is right to be disappointed about abandonment. It is right to be disappointed about abuse and injustice and racism. Those things are wrong. And sometimes the only thing we can do, the right thing to do is to look at those things and go, it was not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. Experiencing disappointment is part of being human that live in a sinful, fallen world. But it's not the full story. There's another story, a story of hope that Jesus gets into. And the irony of this passage is that for the disciples, that hope is right there in front of them, and they didn't see it. And the hope is right here in front of us. Let's pray that we see it. Start in verse 27 here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went with them, and when he was at table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened, the scripture, opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found ele the eleven and those who are with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. When they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What does Jesus do in the midst of their disappointment? He meets them and he tells them a new story. Now, 
oftentimes we think the Bible is just a book of morals to teach us how to be good people, or we think it's a book about heroes that we're supposed to imitate. We often think the Old Testament is just a bunch of archaic stuff that we don't need to listen to. And what Jesus says is no, that the Old Testament is primarily a book about his suffering and his glory. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story in the Bible whispers Jesus' name. So if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the Bible from that perspective, you'll see that everything points to Jesus. In Genesis, the seed that will crush the head of the serpent points to Jesus. In Leviticus, I'm sorry, in Exodus, the people are rescued by the blood of a Passover lamb. That points to Jesus. In Leviticus, you read about sin that can only come through a blood sacrifice. That points to Jesus. In Numbers, you read about a bronze serpent that's lifted up, and if everybody who looks at it will be saved, that points to Jesus. In Deuteronomy, you read about cursed people who break God's covenant and need grace. That points to Jesus. All the stories of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We often look at the Old Testament and we see Jesus' suffering and crucifixion in the Old Testament, but it also points to his resurrection. If you just have a dead Savior on a cross, is that hope? No, you've got to also have the resurrection as well, right? So in the Old Testament, when you read about the faith of Abraham, that God, he believed that God would raise his son from the dead, that points to Jesus' resurrection, When you see Jonah three days in darkness in the belly of a great fish, then emerging from that great fish, that points to the resurrection of Jesus. When you read in in Daniel about the Son of Man coming on the clouds to rescue God's people, that points to Jesus. When you read in the Psalms about the one who would not see corruption and the one who was David's Lord that sat next to God, that points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to the suffering and the glory of Jesus. That's the story of hope that God gives us. Why? Because it was necessary for that to happen. Jesus says it was necessary. Just like it was necessary for Mary Poppins to come out of the clouds, to come from another world that we don't know exists. Don't ask questions about Mary Poppins, where she comes from. Just like it was necessary for her to come out of this world, it was necessary for God himself to come into this world and rescue us. It was necessary for Jesus to live a perfect life in word and deed. Because we don't. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die on the cross to pay for our sins because that's what we deserve. It was necessary for Jesus to rise from the grave to defeat Satan, death, and sin because we couldn't. All those things were necessary because a divine problem requires a divine solution. And our primary problem is not with this world, it's with sin. And only Jesus could rescue us from that. A divine problem required a divine solution. And the New Testament teaches that that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the thing that brings us hope. That Jesus is actually reversing all of the effects of the fall in this world. That in Jesus, the impossible has become possible. 
the world, the flesh, and the devil have been defeated through the resurrection? The resurrection proves that we suffer not as those without hope, but with hope. The resurrection proves that we're enough. The resurrection proves that everything sad is going to become untrue. Take all of your good, godly disappointments and look at Jesus and see that it's all going to become untrue one day. That one day, someday, Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. That everything sad is going to be no more. That death itself will be vanquished. And they will spend eternity with God in heaven. That's the story of our hope. That through Jesus, the sin and misery of this world is being healed and it's being transformed. That's the story that we believe. That's the story of the Bible. And that's what makes it good. So let me close briefly by just showing real quickly how that applies to our disappointments, right? It, brings, it, it corrects our false expectations. It corrects our false expectations. If you're there and you're looking to things in this world to make you enough, they won't. But as you receive Jesus and rest in him, he reconciles you to God, and you're enough because he's enough. Your life is hid on high with Christ. There's nothing that changes that. So that allows you to rest. If you're looking at your life going, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm confused, I'm disappointed, Jesus offers you a better story by receiving him and resting in him. Um, Jesus, the resurrection, it, it corrects our naive expectations and it gives us hope, right? Like I said earlier, it's just naive to think that the, world, that the things of this world will make us happy. But what Jesus says is if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything you need will be given to you. If you seek happiness through the things of this world, you won't be happy and you won't be righteous. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then you'll both be righteous and you'll be happy. And that comes as we form ourselves around his word. We, we need to read his word. We need to read all of his word, believe it, trust in it, and let that form our expectations about this world. That will give us rest and that will give us hope. And lastly, if you, if you have good godly disappointments, you need to bring those to the Lord. And he will meet you in your disappointments the way he met the disciples on the road. He will. I was reading Job this week, and as I was reading through Job, I, I came to this, this powerful section where, where Job experienced extreme suffering, extreme suffering, yet in the midst of his extreme suffering, he, he said he believed that God was all-powerful and all-knowing, and that though God slays him, yet he will hope in God, because he knew one day that his Redeemer would live and he would see God. Though God slays you, hope in him, trust in him. He's a good father that loves you. On the cross, you see that he's all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving. He's making everything sad come untrue through Jesus. That's our hope. We look to Jesus. We look to his coming. We look to his person and work. That gives us hope. 
That gives us a new story. That transforms our disappointments. That gives us joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much uh, that you meet us in our disappointment. That we don't have to put on a happy, clappy, smiley face uh, and just claim that everything is okay and everything is good because some of it is not. Father, there are things in this world that are, that are just wrong, and you know that. And that's why you sent Jesus for us, Father. I pray that we would see the hope of the resurrection in our lives and in this world. Uh, I pray for all of us this morning that we would see that we're enough in Jesus. I pray that we'd rest in him. I pray that our expectations for this world would be formed around you and your word. Uh, And I pray, God, that you would show us that our Redeemer lives, that Jesus is alive. And because of that, we can trust you with our deepest suffering and our deepest disappointments. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.